Seven decades ago, the first television adaptation of Superman arrived. Now, it's time to rocket back to the 1952-1958 series Adventures of Superman, starring George Reeves. In this rewatch podcast, my guests and I break down each episode, from its black-and-white crime drama beginnings to the kid-friendly color seasons, as we celebrate one of the most underrated Man of Steel depictions of all time. Welcome to another exciting episode in the Adventures of Superman. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss Season 1, Episode 15, Double Trouble, is returning guest once again in studio, Rich Roney. Welcome back. Hey, hello everybody. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so happy to have you back here. So, the Double Trouble episode, this aired on December 26th, 1952, and was written by Eugene Solo, directed by Tommy Carr. Uh, I'll give a synopsis in a second, but... I wanted to to toss it to you first. You know, last time you were here, we talked about your history as a viewer of Adventures of Superman, uh, watching the show as a kid in the 60s. It was so great to get that perspective. I wanted to ask you about this episode in particular because we were talking about which season one installments you would come on the show to talk about. Uh, I think I kind of roped you into the last one, No Holds Barred, a little bit, and I appreciate you doing that one. But this one, you specifically, you wanted to do this one. So I was just curious why and if if your opinion has changed at all. I have a little bit of, of insight from what we talked about off mic, but uh, why did you want this one? And, and and has your opinion shifted at all from when you initially requested it? Yes. So here's why I wanted it. Um, <clears throat> but in reverse order, yes, my opinion has shifted, right? So uh, for the benefit of your audience, um, and we, we alluded to this the last time I visited, Two years ago, uh, we did this kind of macro-level review of all of season one and then the remaining seasons of, of the six seasons of The Adventures. My memory of watching this, and it was a blur, it was binge-watching, but we're going to get into it later on here. Um, Superman has interaction with army intelligence in, in, in Germany, and I'm going to expand on it. In, in as we dissect this, but th that fascinated me. That fascinated me. And I know that some time ago, um, you and, and Bill Mayo did a review of Superman uh, as, as a government stooge, more in the Frank Miller thing. Here, I found it interesting that there was a collaborative interaction with uh, Army intelligence. I, I just found that very interesting. Um, but then as I watched it uh, with a more uh, careful eye, there's a lot of plot holes in this episode. Um, um, now, the other thing that I, I, I think holds true is this is a fast-paced mystery. Uh, it, it's very, very, very much akin to the Republic B serials of the late 30s. It moves so fast, you don't pick up the plot holes unless, unless you're paying attention, right? But then they're pretty profound. So my opinion's changed, but there's aspects of this... Um, that intrigued me more in terms of the background and um, and the players in it. Wait, are you saying that you can't tell someone's gender from their fingerprints, especially in the 1950s? Actually, that's one of my notes. That's one of my notes. <laughs> I'll that be honest. I'm very curious to, to, to have you share your notes and to get your take on all this because I was not, I was not kind of hit in the face by, by plot holes. So now I'm wondering like, what did I, what did I miss? So this will be very interesting. Let me give my synopsis of double trouble. A ship passenger kills his accomplice, poses as a woman, and recruits a witless Jim Olsen to deliver, what turns out to be, an empty box to a nefarious doctor. The murdered body in the stateroom and Jim's disappearance lead Clark Kent all the way to Germany on a mystery involving Nazi espionage and stolen radium. So that's our setup for this episode. You know, last time you were on, we did more of a specific scene-by-scene -scene breakdown when we went through No Holds Barred. Uh, here, you know, as always, we'll make our way through the episode. Uh, I think this is an episode that might lend itself to a little bit more of a fluid discussion. We could talk more about sequences or, or portions of the episodes rather than, you know, necessarily a, a strict scene by scene breakdown. You know, I'm thinking about that whole opening sequence from the stateroom to the port and customs and, and all of that. But are there any other, before we get more specific, any other general impressions uh, or, or any big picture items that you wanted to talk about here? I know in particular there was there was an actor that you wanted to speak yes, about. Yes, yes. Um, I can tee it up, and I'm, I, I really want you to drive and you to pull the questions out of me. Um, 
but the other things I do, um, so for the benefit of your audience, uh, this is episode number 15. Throughout season one, there was kind of a, a, a fill-in character, Stephen Carr, who's the brother of director Thomas Carr. And uh, Anthony, I think you and I are probably uh, perhaps two of the 500 people in the world that are now starting to be able to recognize Stephen Carr in his appearances. I didn't know this, but now that I'm watching more and more of these episodes, this guy appeared in 14 episodes in season one. He's the brother of the director, but he was very versatile. He jumped in where he he needed to. He filled, he helped move things along because from what you've educated me on, they pumped these things out. They did like four episodes, uh, in the same, uh, you know, Perry's office all at once. So how the actors kept things straight. But this guy jumped in and played 14 different characters. Um, So kudos to him for, you know, helping move things along in this ensemble acting. So I do want to talk a little bit about Stephen Carr. Uh, This is not my favorite portrayal of Stephen Carr. I also, uh, I found as I was driving over and trying to collect my thoughts for today's discussion... I wanted to call him Hadley. <laughs> My instincts were to call him Hadley. Uh, the other thing I found interesting with this episode is they kind of expanded Superman's power set because now this is the first episode where he was able to fly from America to Germany, get some information, and come back in such a tiny window of time. So I think you saw steps where um, his power set was being increased to be a l- little more commensurate with what you saw in the comics published at the time. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm excited to get into this episode. Uh, I don't, I don't know that I necessarily have a ton in the way of, again, overall, overall takeaways or anything like that. I, I did think it was a solid, it was a solid mystery. I think stemming from, uh, you know, Germany as our country of origin and this whole Nazi espionage thing, certainly, felt appropriate for for the time, right, post-World War II. Yeah, actually, I was going to—I touched on that in my notes. Yeah, one of the weird things is uh, the war had only been over for six years, right? So I'm sure it was not unlike us uh, in, say, 2007, 2008, after the attacks in the World Trade Center. It was probably still very top of mind. So the the backdrop of Nazis— um, really, I think was you know the World War II ended six years earlier, so it was probably prevalent in the minds of the writers. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I liked, I did like sort of the globe trotting aspect and and Superman's flight to and from Germany. It it definitely tests the suspension of disbelief when Clark returns and how'd has, you do that? <laughs> has to account for for what he was able to accomplish, the information he was able to get. Oh, we'll we'll talk about that. So that was that was a little bit of a stretch, but. Overall, you know, I, I enjoyed the, you know, the basic setup. I agree with you about Stephen Carr. I mean, really the ultimate utility player in this first season. And, you know, I know for people who know this Adventures of Superman series backward and forward, you know, this is this is old hat to them. Uh, you know, I'm embarrassed to say when I, you know, starting this podcast, despite having watched season one, I, I was not making the connection that that was the same actor in all of those episodes and all of those parts. And, you know, sometimes we're talking really large parts. Other times, you know, on the smaller side, like it really ran the gamut. Amen. Yeah, that that's consciousness on my part. Like, uh, I used the phraseology Hadley, and I know you discussed this about the mind machine some while ago. He had a very, yeah. very prominent role there. Other things, he was just some poor guy given like, the cook giving uh, stuff to the waiter. Um, there's, I happened to see it as I was watching this episode to prepare for this, but there's a future episode, I think the Mystery uh, mystery in the Wax Museum or something like that, um, where he has a prominent role in that too. So I can, I, not, I can now recognize him. And then the last thing that I will say that amazed me, again, he's versatile. He's the, the sixth, he's the sixth, Sixth man, you can throw him in. He can play guard. He can play forward. He can, he can fill a hole, fill a breach. Um, he's also the guy at the very uh, beginning that goes look up in the sky. He's the one pointing up in the sky. So um, my respect for him. And then I also learned, in addition to 
like uh, being uh, this background actor, uh, 14 episodes, season one. Uh, he also was dialogue coach in 52 of the episodes. So he did work uh, behind the camera. And, you know, kudos to him uh, just just for really helping out the whole team. Yeah, for sure. And and again, maybe I, I should have been dialed into the fact that he popped up so many times when I when I did my first watch of this. But at the same time, I you know, maybe it's a testament to his acting, right? That I so bought him in these these various roles that I wasn't necessarily making that connection. And, you know, I, I, I wasn't looking for it. Uh, but, you know, you know, again, I think, too, maybe it is a testament to to what he was able to pull off. And, you know, and I've mentioned this on the show before, I, you know, a huge Honeymooners fan. And, uh, you know, I watch those every every New Year's. And, you know, there, and I don't have the actor's name off the top of my head, but he played the character Fred, uh, who worked with Ralph at, at the at the bus company, but he also played a bunch of other characters on the show. And it's like every time he popped, I was just referred to him as Fred, even if that wasn't the character he was playing, because that was the one he played the most. But, you know, so I, 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 I like that idea of sort of a utility player who pops in and out like that. Yeah, yeah. And as I reflect on it, I, I know, and we know, we both love this episode. He was in the uh, the mind machine. He was the the science leader, he was the assistant. He was clearly had the ability to fly a plane. And he must have been very, very, very healthy because Superman jawed him and knocked him out and he didn't even have a bruise. Um, but he did other things, I think, where uh, uh, the secret of Superman, he was with the cook or something like that. He was, I think, in um, the, second ep- the, the second episode... I mistakenly always call it Moose Island. A haunted lighthouse. Haunted lighthouse. He was one of the Coast Guard uh, guys. Um, Night of Terror, he's the travel agent. Right. Who they yeah, call yeah. And he's Boy, taking and his time. You can, yeah, you can see different acting. He, he had a little more urgency with the mind machine. Um, but yeah, he was like, geez, come on, let's move it along. This episode made possible in part by educator, hobby comic book collector, and pop culture enthusiast, Sam Lim. Sam just moved to the South Jersey area and is looking to connect with other comics fans as well as retailers. They are also looking for comic shops to explore, so recommendations are welcome. Be sure to follow Sam on Instagram at SZLComics. Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and under new ownership since 2020, Moose sells a wide selection of new and old comics from every publisher, action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany, New Jersey the next time you're in the Garden State. And be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. Thank you to all members of my Patreon community for supporting this podcast. If you like what you hear and are not a member yet, please consider signing up today at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato. We offer a variety of monthly reward tiers, and discounted annual memberships are available too. Beginning at the $1 level, you can listen to Digging for Justice, my exclusive DC Movie Rewatch podcast. Click the link in the show notes for more. If you're looking for other ways to support the show, leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcast goes a long way and only takes a second. You're also welcome to join the conversation on social media via the links in the show notes. Last but not least, we are an affiliate of BCW Supplies, so the next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP to save 10% on your order. That's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions. It helps support the show, too. Thank you. Yeah, I you know the I guess other big picture thing here, and I've I've mentioned this on a, on a bunch of episodes now, including the last one that you and I did, because when we talked about No Holds Barred, Clark tells Perry about this wrestling promoter who's a good friend of his, Sam Bleeker. And, you know, never saw him before, never seen him again. And it's like, what's the backstory here? I'm always fascinated by this. I think the reason, I think the reason I'm so fascinated by this is, and I, I know I've said this in other episodes, but when you go back to Superman on Earth, right, the, the telling of the origin story, unlike other versions of the story, particularly in the modern era where Clark embarks on a worldwide odyssey before ultimately settling in Metropolis and becoming Superman. When you do something like that, you've built in a device, right? So if you ever need to pull in a personal connection, it's like, well, that happened on his time traveling. Here, 
it seemed pretty clear in the way Superman on Earth played out that it was a pretty direct line from Smallville to Metropolis. Now, that's not to say he, you know, there are episodes that reference him traveling for the Daily Planet and things like that. So I'm not saying, oh, there's no opportunity for him to be meeting these people, but it's not built in as organically as as it is when you have that, that larger journey. And so it's just always funny to me. I mean, I know it's it's a convenience, right? Like they need they need to move the plot along. So, well, what's one way to do that? Well, he's got a friend who knows something. And I have that in my notes as well. At one point, like when we were together a few weeks ago and we discussed No Holds Barred, he speaks about Sam Bleeker, right? He's a friend of mine. Here, I think at one point uh, he says to Inspector Henderson, Oh, I can get in touch with Colonel Redding. He's a good friend. He's one of my best friends. One of my best friends. friends. And then, Anthony, you know, much later in the series, there was a guy named Gary Allen who somehow, uh, by virtue of the exploding um, meteorite, he got, he became invulnerable when he was exposed to kryptonite, which I still got to process. But another, a good friend of Clark's, Gary Allen. And that was, uh, aside from tapping into a friend when they're needed, right? Um, The other thing that really intrigued me about this was, and the same thing with the prior episode, I really like it when characters respect Clark for being Clark. Sam respected him. The colonel, I mean, all the guys in Army Intelligence have an immediate respect just respect for Clark. He's competent. He knows what he's talking about. He's earned the ability for them to tell him things that will, you know, collaborative in a collaborative fashion, help out either society or people who need it. So this respect from others, with the exception of the lady that runs the employment agency and the coffee truck guy, every every everyone who's not Lois or Jimmy or Perry has respect, respect for him. No, that is, that is such a great point. But yeah, so I mean, I guess that's the other big picture thing I always think about with this episode is, and again, it's not just an acquaintance or a friend. It's one of his best, best friends, friend. Colonel And we never Redding, saw him again. Who, you know, again, Army Intelligence stationed in Germany. It's just, I, I always am fascinated by the private life of Clark Kent in Adventures of Superman. And like the un, there are untold stories here. <laughs> Anthony, to your point, you, I think, I'm, I'm certain you brought this up the prior time we got together. Could there be something in the radio show where Colonel Redding was a character in other mysteries or other investigations? You know, could there be some connection along those lines? Um, but yeah, the, the phraseology, he's, he's my, one of my best friends. We never saw him before or after, you know? Yeah. It's, uh, and, and again, I don't even say this as a criticism. I, I, I'm genuinely curious uh, and, and fascinated by this. So uh, you know, let's talk about this opening sequence here. We have this big ocean liner that's docked in Metropolis, and we open on this this uh, purported health official, right, who's looking in, in various rooms. Now, we don't get their names until a little bit later, but I'm going to call them by their names now for ease of reference here. So that's Fisher, this con man, uh, and he eventually enters the room of Otto von Kleben. That's the Stephen Carr character. Correct. And the Count has uh, has something that... Uh, is meant to go to a doctor. There's an ambulance outside and two nurses slash orderlies who are going to take the count and this item to the doctor. But we get a double cross. Right, right. Uh, there was, yeah, yeah. All of this hinges, and, and you gave the synopsis so so well done at the beginning. Like, look, this arriving ocean liner docks at Metropolis this alleged health inspector goes in to pick up uh, the the uh, the material. He's murdered, you know. Uh, this guy's murdered. Jimmy's kidnapped, and then Clark has to jump in and figure why would why was this person murdered? What's the connection to what happened to Jimmy? Right. So it is a mystery. Um. It it moved very 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 fast, and it had kind of a broad. You know, both geographically and in terms of content, a broad spectrum of what's going on. You, you know, it's it when when the count uh, hit Fisher on the back of the head with a gun. I did you think he was dead? No, I didn't. I thought he was knocked out. I thought he was knocked out, and then and then the count you know rolls him you know stuffs him under the bed, and then later we find out that was there murdered. was this murdered body in the room. So 
Yeah, I mean, he meets a grisly end, uh, this guy right at the and top. And it really many, seemed like he was knocked out. How many times have we seen that on multiple shows where someone takes a revolver or a gun or a pipe and hits someone and just knocks them out? I thought he was knocked out. Uh, I, I mean, in fairness, it's like I'm I'm sure you can kill someone doing that. So, you know, it, it's, not, it's not out of the realm of possibility. But yeah, I was definitely... Even though I've seen this episode before, I didn't remember that detail. And I was definitely surprised when they were like, oh, it was a dead body. It's like, oh, okay. I just thought this guy was unconscious. So we then see uh, at, at the at the port, we see Lois and Jimmy arriving. And uh, they're here to, to get an interview with this movie star who's who's also uh, getting off of, of the ship. And we also cut to the the orderlies at the, at the ambulance and they're clocking who they think are feds waiting, right? So they're suspicious. So we have a few moving pieces here. Um, and- Jumping back to our stateroom, uh, we now see the Count start to don his his female attire, right? So we see him putting on a wig, and then we'll we'll see him uh, heading to the customs line in full drag, right? So dress, wig, purse, makeup, uh, pretty convincing, I would say. And you talk about from a performance standpoint, I feel like he really went for it, especially later on when he's when he uh, calls Jimmy over and the accent yeah. and the higher pitch voice. Oh, my ankle, um, Miss Madame Charpentier, Charpentier. Yeah, yeah. I never took French, so I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. There was a definite double cross, and we'll get to it more <clears throat> that. This character, uh, Count Otto von Kleben, or uh, Madame Charpentier, she was allegedly, she, or I'm sorry, they said she stayed in the stateroom the entire trip over, had her meals served in. So obviously, if you're really a man masquerading as a woman, you're not going to go out and, you know, your five o'clock shadow and your Adam's apple might ruin it. So uh, he, I, I still, I want to dissect that with you a little bit later, I am trying to figure out why there was the double cross, right? What was what was the end game of that? Yeah, so, you know, that piece is interesting where we don't, and I'm thinking back on it quickly, I, I mean, I don't think we really ever get any explanation other than, I mean, we are told that the the radium, like that that's what the item in question is, I believe was worth a, a million or, or more. It was in the millions, right, that it was, I, it was worth. So- I mean, presumably he didn't want to, you know, he wanted to keep it for himself. I mean, I, I suspect it's probably as simple as that. It's kind of interesting. On the one hand, yes, you could look at that as a plot hole and it's like, hey, why didn't we get more of the backstory to account for this double cross? At the same time, I don't know. There's something that I, that's kind of I, it, it, like the 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 omission of that information and, and the little bit of, of cloudiness surrounding that I, i'm okay with that it's like yeah we don't know exactly what what led and even like right off the bat as soon as fisher enters the stateroom there's tension there yes right these yes. aren't accomplices who are who are united, collaborators or partners like toward a common goal like yeah. there's there's that antagonism uh yeah, immediately why didn't, you know, why didn't you knock on the door well you know i must have forgotten right and, and then so when fisher enters he sneaks in right and then um Stephen Carr, or I'm always going to call him Hadley, but really Count von Kleben is hiding behind the door. So there, there's tension. There's distrust between the two. Uh, you know, no honor among thieves. Maybe we, we kind of chalk it up to that. I, yeah. I'm okay with that. I didn't, that didn't take me out of it where I'm like, oh, I don't know what happened here. And to your point, so the, uh, the orderlies, the guys with the ambulance who are supposed to receive this radium. They're, they're eyeballing the feds, right? And in, according to the plan, they're supposed to take the radium to um, a Dr. Albrecht or something like that, right? Who, who's clearly a Nazi. And that makes sense for the tenor of the times, right? The war was over six years earlier. But there was never any indication of what Albrecht wanted to do with the radium, or with what uh, von Kleben, who'd pulled the double cross, what he was going to do. Because, you know, again, this was 1951, 1952. I don't know where you're going to find a market. Where are you going to go down to some uh, pawn shop and go, hey, I got two million in radium. Uh, let's market it. 
Okay, now granted, that's me being uh, overly, overly critical, and I apologize for that. But uh, we we didn't understand what what even if it if, if the things had gone through, what Albrecht was going to do with the radium. Um, it's true. I I think we get a very we're we're viewing this. We're given this, well, we are viewing, but I mean, in terms of what the episode presents to us, we are given a, a relatively narrow scope, right? We don't get the backstory. Some blanks are filled in, especially when Clark goes to Germany and all of that. But, you know, again, we don't know necessarily the reason for the double cross. We don't know necessarily what the exact plan is for the radium, but, you know, we're really zeroing in on just the, the, the retrieval of it. And then of course, Jim's disappearance. So, I, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm okay with that, but your your points are well taken, and I certainly understand the you know the inclination to sort of want more more of that bigger picture. I mean, I, I totally get that. So, but and I'll share this if I may, and if I'm going too no, fast, no, no. you stop me. But here's another uh, thing that amazed me, and it, it speaks to how uh, really in season one, and you know, you've always said this better than me that the timing and the structure of how they would film things. They might film four different episodes in Perry's office all at once. So the ability for people to do stuff. But what kind of surprised me is, um, as you teed it up, so Stephen Carr, uh, uh, masquerading, disguised as a female, calls Jimmy over and, and says, oh, young man, will you please deliver this, this serum to those, to those orderlies? They're waiting for it. It's it's important, you know. So he takes this over, the, this package thing. Uh, Stephen Carr, in disguise as a woman, gets in a cab and hits the road, leaves. Jimmy gets thrown in the back of the ambulance, right? Um, and the orderlies take him to Albrecht's office. But Lois sees Jimmy being kidnapped and kind of says something, and then we never see Lois for the rest of the episode. Yeah, Lois, and it's funny because I literally just realized this as we were starting to record, and I was just sort of doing my mental inventory, and I'm like, yeah, wait a minute. <laughs> like, <laughs> Lois just vanishes. It, that That's a little odd. Uh, I have to say, I love Jack Larson in this episode. It, just that just that that innocence. He's so happy to be called over and and to be of value and to be of service and, and happily runs Flips that. the box, catches it. Yeah, happily runs it over the serum. Uh, this, this, this poor kid. Uh, I, I'm jumping ahead, uh, actually not by much, uh, actually not jumping ahead at all because like you said, he's, he's shoved into the ambulance and then we have the scene with Jim and one of the orderlies and the doctor, right? And a lot of back and forth about, you know, Jim recounting his side of the story, them not believing him. I, I felt this got a little tedious. I felt like this went on a, a, a little bit long, but I love, I love Jim when he shares his his identification right he he explains that he's jim olsen from the daily planet and he slaps his id down on the table it's like these nazi spies don't care buddy but this poor kid you know he's so it's like he's you know it's like he's all set he's like i'll be on my way now i i just i loved i i, I just love that whole interaction and and how he played that i agree i agree and <laughs> um when we look at it through the lens of today and from from a pragmatic standpoint right they almost would have been better served to get him right out of there, right? Well, you know what? Even before that, I, I wanted to get your take on this. I Initially, I said, maybe this is a little bit of a plot hole, but I can I can reconcile this. You kind of wonder, the Count has this disguise, right? Fisher's stuffed under the bed. The Count is coming out as Madame Chapontier and gets through customs and everything and can just get in the cab. There's no need necessarily to send Jim over with what turns out to be that empty box. That's when the a good point. When the doctor in the office opens it up. But- That's a good point. But A, we wouldn't have an episode. And B, in fairness, it's like that does buy the count extra time, right? Because no. otherwise it could have, I mean, those orderlies could have, I mean, I don't know. They didn't have much to go on, really nothing to and go on at disguised, that point. he was disguised, right? So- yeah, I don't know. That might, I, I don't know. You could probably argue that either way. I don't know. It, maybe it actually would have made more sense to just to just make the most out of this, uh, you know, like the total confusion. Because once they find out it's an empty, you know, it's an empty box, like some of the pieces start to click into place. And in that scene with the doctor, they get the news that Fisher was found dead in the stateroom. Uh, and also that the room was listed to this Madame Chapontier. So like for the 
for the, the, the bad guys of the story. The puzzle is starting to fit together here. But I was just thinking about that. I was like, yeah, you know, she could, he, she, so, so convincing as the, as the madame, like he could have just left. Agreed. And I didn't realize that, <laughs> I didn't realize that till you just vocalized it, right? Uh, again, we would not have had an episode. But apparently the, the, the two orderlies or the assistants to Dr. Albrecht, they only learned that Fisher's body was in Madame Charpentier's stateroom after the murder was announced. They didn't know what Madame Charpentier looked like, right? <laughs> this name is yeah. this name is ever evolving. Yeah. The more we say it, <laughs> Charpentier. Uh, Albrecht could, or I'm sorry, von Kleben could have, in disguise, just gotten in the car and left, right? But again, we would not have had an episode. Yeah, it's like, it, it is what it is. I also love, and and this is n- not limited to this episode, I love how quick uh, the bad guys are in these shows to take hostages. Now, I'm not a criminal. I would imagine, though, right, you're looking to 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 mitigate your risk as much as possible. And I feel like taking hostages, you know, needlessly complicates matters in certain instances where, where it can be avoided. And what's just funny here is... Jim is so in the dark, right, that they could have just sent him on his way. So I understand initially they were really trying to get a sense of like how much does he actually know and is his story true? Like I I do understand that. But at a certain point, I feel like they could have just sent him off and not have had to worry about about keeping a hostage. See, as we're discussing literally this (laughs) second, could they have felt compelled to keep him? Because if they learned he was from the press— and he was so confused. And he goes, geez, Mr. Ken, I don't know what's going on. These guys threw me into this doctor's office. He brought out these huge gloves to, uh, you know, <laughs> prevent radiation from hitting his hands on a tiny, like, two-inch by two-inch box. And really, if I were Jimmy, I would have been quicker on the pickup, like, hey, why are you wearing those things going all the way, all the way up to your shoulder? Uh, so, he, so much might have transpired where they might have been afraid like hey if he is a newspaper person he might start asking around about this as opposed to if they jettison right away i think that's fair i'll go with that i mean that's the thing i you know it, it may be some assistance we're being overly generous but i you know i think there are there are logical inferences that can be made i think that's fair and the other thing and <laughs> throwing him into this closet that's uh, uh has electrical charges in it right with the uh the Just pull that rope <laughs> Yeah. I think of that honeymooners episode where uh where Ralph and Ed were in that that wealthy person's home and there was that rope and they didn't realize that it summoned the butler ah. and they kept pulling it and the butler kept coming in and he's like, Yes, and they're like, No, we, we don't need you and he would go away and they just kept coming back. Uh yeah, here far the the stakes were a lot higher. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated full service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina, for people of all ages and walks of life. Now in its fortieth year. This multiple-time Eisner Award nominee features a significant contemporary and vintage back-issue selection, as the Acme team uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material. Mail-order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available anywhere via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the AcmeCast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. Filmmakers and movie fans alike should be sure to attend these film festivals. Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. On a personal note, my short film, By Spoon, The J. Mizell Story, played at these fests, so I know firsthand what fun and well-run events they are. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts, available via a shared universe network. Oh Yeah Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, which happens to be my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. 
If you have children and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join Aw Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit awyeahcomics.com and follow Aw Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Say it with me. Aw Yeah. But our next scene is, is Clark and Henderson at police headquarters. Henderson drove me nuts in this scene. Oh, right? so, I know where you're going. So I don't understand this. So, you know, Lois saw Jimmy shoved into the back of this ambulance. And then right? we never saw Lois and again. And we never saw Lois again. But Clark and, and Henderson are talking about it. And Henderson, the first thing Henderson says is like, I wouldn't worry about it. I bet Jim is just, uh, you know, doing some ambulance chasing, right? Looking for a story. And then like a beat later, he's like, oh, you know, that amb- it wasn't a real ambulance. Like it was rented and it was, you know, we don't know who the driver was. And to your point, when <laughs> Clark walks into the room, Henderson hides a file folder under some uh, under some papers on his desk. Oh. But then he reveals everything. Well, here we got these fingerprints, and that wasn't a real ambulance. Uh, so, But if you notice, when Clark immediately first walks into the room, whatever Henderson's working on, he hides under some other papers on his desk. But then he reveals everything. Hey, go down and talk to our fingerprint guy. Um I, I did like the discussion between Henderson and Clark as they shared information uh, on this, but it didn't start out that way. I think a lot of the frustration I, I have with Henderson in various episodes is I just, I, he should be better at his job. And I know he can only be so good at it, right? We need, we need Clark, we need Superman, we need Lois, but I, I, I don't know. I, I like that. I, I, I had a hard time reconciling that sort of this, how, how quick he was to say, oh, I'm sure Jim is fine. Yet he, in the, the next breath, right, is talking about how mysterious this ambulance was and they like <laughs> they don't know who was behind it. So, and they know it's not a real ambulance. So I don't know. That was a little tough. And then, you know, we have this, this whole bit about the, the fingerprints. And I, I guess even before that, uh, they're, they are, they're starting to put the pieces together. This idea that the murder in the, in the state room and Jim's disappearance are connected Right, and that fingerprints have been found and male fingerprints. And I looked this up. I did too. <laughs> and it's this annoyed the sh- this annoyed me, right? Uh, because early on, you know, they uh, we checked out uh, Madame Charpentier's stateroom, and there were male fingerprints. Right now, fingerprints are gender agnostic. Right, <laughs> you can't tell the gender of a person based on their. It's impossible. So that was that was one of the disappointments, one of the plot holes, uh, and I've got a few others, but th- that that annoyed me. That was a big one. I was I didn't do I didn't you know do a full uh, research paper here, but I, I did come across one thing. I think within recent years, they I think there are certain certain indicators that can give a little bit more guidance as to the gender, but it's still it's not like oh this is definitely a man or definitely a woman. And and again, we're talking about you know recent innovations and, and limited ones. So I think this was really a stretch. If it had been more, it's a full handprint, you know, and we could see the size of the hand. Agreed. It's most likely Agreed. a man. I mean, maybe that was Agreed. more the intention here. I, I don't know. But that was just like, mm, I don't know and about wasn't that. wasn't there also <laughs> something uh, just a couple of beats later where Henderson uh, suggests to Clark, why don't you go down and, and meet with our, uh, our forensic scientist guy? And he was doing uh, work to develop the pictures of the prints. And um, whoever it was, they have some discussion back and forth. And then the guy goes, hey, let me just go print those things for you. Clark doesn't wait for that. He goes behind the file cabinet, changes to Superman, and leaves before he gets the very things he ne- he's supposed to fly to Germany with. I, I could not make sense of that scene. Uh, that I, I made note of that, too. It was so odd because the, the technician says, like, it'll be two, two seconds. Yeah. You know, it's one thing if he was like, listen, this is going to take a while. You might want to settle in. It'll be a while until I can get you these results. And Clark said, well, I can't wait. And it cha- it's like, why? And it's just, again, suspension of disbelief. It's just, you know, we can buy into so much of this. But it's like, it feels like Clark's going out of his way to expose himself or to raise questions here. Yeah, because right? he, he runs to the corner of the technician's office behind some like four four drawer file cabinets. There's a little corner where a man can crouch down. He crouches down in his Clark Kent, Kent clothes and jumps up Superman. Now, one, I don't know where he left his suit, right? 
But then he just flies right out, and the technician comes out and goes, hey, I got the things for you. But just prior to that is when, and and I, quite frankly, I forget how they made, I guess it was through von Kleben that they realized it was headquartered in Germany. And that's, now I'm starting to put the pieces together. That's when Clark goes, hey, I can I can call my friend Colonel Redding. He's one of my best friends. So now, I'm sorry, I had to connect the dots on that. No, no, you're all good. Well, because they knew that, so the body was found in Madame's room and Madame got on the boat in Germany, right? So I think that was where the connection was starting to come in. However, you know, the wrinkle here and the reason why Clark has to fly to Germany as Superman Oh. There's some atmospheric interference yeah, and the, 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 the calls to Germany are delayed. Three hours or something like that. Yeah. 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 Clark is able to, to in theory, get there on a plane, right? I, I like, would, would these conditions affect other other instruments, like, like on a plane? I mean, I, I have no idea. I'm really nitpicking now, I guess. <laughs> okay. Uh, but, but yeah, so that sets up, like, he's got this best friend in, <laughs> in Army Intelligence in Germany, and again, can't even wait for the fingerprint results. Like flies over there, and and so we meet Colonel Redding, and yeah, you know, to your point, I I, I do, even though it's always a little bit mysterious how he has these connections. I, I do like when, and I guess too, it's a little tough because these people generally don't stick around or come back. So it, you know, I guess if if we were populating the world with with more recurring players, right, and building out the world a little bit more, I, I, I think that that could be cool. Most of these tend to be one-offs, but it's still cool, I guess, just to get a little bit more of an insight into into the people in his orbit, you know, and, and to your point, the way that they, the way that they, you know, respect Clark and, and treat him as an equal and, and all of that, uh, I, I like that a lot. I think it, you know, we see how Clark acts, but then it's also how act, people act toward him, Right, that help establish his character. So I, I, I'm with you. I, I, I thought that was cool. And how shall I say it? I, I'm going to to your to your credit. You're hitting this sequentially, so I'm really coming out of left field for for a moment. But um, you said this a while ago, and I forget the episode, Anthony. I totally forget the episode. Maybe it was the birthday letter, right? When Clark comes back to the Daily Planet, and he's talking to Lois, and she goes, how did that go when you were covering the uh, the, cha- the train derailment? Yep. Okay. That would have been more interesting if that were the essence of the episode, right? But I know they were going for the heartstrings with the little girl and the birthday letter. Here, I would have liked it if Colonel Redding contacted Clark and goes, look, we could use some help. There's There's been a theft, and... We think the the characters in Metropolis or something. I would have liked it if if G two or Army Intelligence initiated this, as opposed to this convoluted thing where where Jimmy has to carry an empty box over to the bad guy. I would have been more intrigued if it had been initiated by G two and Army Intelligence as opposed to this convoluted uh, circuitous thing. No, I hear you. I hear you. It, it, it's funny. So in this scene, I, I guess there there were. Well, two things that made me laugh. One, perhaps, is another plot hole. The other one is, is sort of at my, my own my own fault. <laughs> so uh, we have perhaps the fastest fingerprint match ever. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> Redding just like, goes over to a drawer and like pulls out. Yeah, first file. <laughs> it's like all right, that was convenient. So we now know Otto von Kleben, who's an orderly at this military hospital, and then in walks Doctor Schumann. And Clark, to George Reeves' credit, I mean, you see like the look on his on his face. They played that a little too much, the slack slack jawed confusion. <laughs> I mean, no, they did it well. Uh, and and for the benefit of the listeners, um, the murdered person had a twin brother. Okay, so the murdered person, I guess, his new identity in America was Fisher. But over in Germany, his twin brother uh, worked in this um, U.S. Army hospital in Germany as a Schumann, I think, mm-hmm. right? And when he walks in the room, Clark was just stunned. You could see the confusion on his face. And I attributed that they must – Henderson must have showed him a picture of the dead person. Yes. Um, and then he, he immediately saying, wait a minute um, – I loved the look of puzzlement 
first. Then it cut back to Colonel Redding. And about 30 seconds later, it goes back to Clark, and he's still slack-jawed like he's confused. <laughs> so either they had to fill, they, 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 they filled time, but, uh, but yeah, he was puzzled. Um, I, I'll be honest. So the first time I watched this a couple of years ago, I did not recognize Schumann. I, I did not make the connection. I, you know, in the first scene- Because you forget- yeah, I mean, like the first scene with Fisher, he's got a hat on, and he's I, got the uh, yeah health I, inspector. I just I didn't, I guess, register his face to the extent that I needed to to then recognize that same face when he walked in as doctor. Because I remember, like, I remember a couple of years ago watching this, and I like I, I didn't. I felt like a little lost in that scene, and of course, then Clark articulates, you know, to Redding, like this guy's a dead ringer for the for the body in in, in Metropolis. So, and then I probably like you know <laughs> rewound, and I was like, oh, okay. But uh, yeah, the first time around, again, and that's not the show's fault. That's my own. Uh, I, I was, I guess, not paying close enough attention. But I remember just being like, what? Because <laughs> again, the, the Clark reaction is so pronounced. And I was yeah. like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> that one's on me. That one's on me. Uh, so, you know, of, of course, Schumann tries to throw them off, you know, throw them off the sand, like talks about how von Kleben was fired. There's nothing that could be stolen. Like there are no secret formulas that he could have memorized. Like, you know, he really tries to throw them off the scent. Take him down a different path. Yeah. 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 Uh, but then Redding has this other, uh, this other officer. Uh, I, I forget his name or what his exact role was there, but he's the one who kind of clues he's them a, into the radium. Yeah. He was a doctor of some type. And uh, Colonel Redding walks Clark down to speak to him because they're wondering like, and again, like you said, Schumann tried to, oh, no, nothing to look at here. <laughs> um, there's no formulas he could have memorized. And then they go down to the lab and uh, Clark goes, hey, do you have anything really valuable here that might have been stolen? And my memory is that's when they reference or they learn that, hey, we've got some radium uh, uh, in, in this safe and it's all in lead-lined containers and they decide to go look for it, right? And Colonel Redding, the doctor, and Clark are all in this very narrow vault, and Schumann comes in behind and closes the door, and I'll let you pick it up from there. Well, don't worry, Clark's got everything under control. He just needs absolute silence, silence. and no motion for 10 seconds. Right. And then, of course, one of them instantly asks a question. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's funny. Uh... In that moment where where Clark gets them out and you know it doesn't doesn't fully account for how he's able to accomplish this right just as later when he returns to Metropolis and Henderson questions how did you get back from Germany so fast how he did this and Clark's words are trade secret it's part part of me part of me says hey we're really you know Clark's really being careless with with the secret and we're really straining the bounds of credulity here however. On the other hand, I'm like, but Clark's a genius. It's like, it's kind of a brilliant strategy. It's like you play it coy like that. And 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 I don't know. It's it, it, it never seems to arouse the suspicion necessarily that he's Superman. It's just like he's got these, he's got this hidden talents or, or whatever you want to call them. I don't know. It's yeah. it's something about it that I do find intriguing. I mean, do you do you find something like that charming or are you like, all right, this is this is kind of pushing it? Well, okay, so. <laughs> and Anthony, I'm thinking about it in the moment, literally this second. So the two things, as you said, right, after Clark returns from Germany, he goes back to Henderson's office. And apparently, I, I'm assuming minutes, you might know better than me, because I watched this once last weekend. Uh, there's some cable Right mm -hmm. where Redding goes, you know, hey, uh, radium stolen. I forget. I forget what was in the the telegram or the uh, the communicate. Wait, I forget. did we just stumble into another plot hole? It's like they, so they couldn't make a phone call, but other means of communication were available. Yeah, because Henderson kind of goes, uh, the definitive facts, uh, credit Kent, right, and then Henderson goes. How did you do that so fast? Trade secret. Now, as a child and watching it now, I attributed to that, well, Superman just just took Clark and flew him back. So Superman was the vehicle, okay? I'm cool with that. 
why the guy from Army Intelligence didn't ask, how did you get out of this two-foot steel door? How did you get this open? When you hear the, you know, the, the like the metal bending, er, er, why they didn't, why did they question that? So one thing I could come up, I could surmise or assume a way to uh, discuss it and cover, cover it. How he got them out of that vault with no one even questioning it, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I was going to say, too, that I, 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 I'm not saying that I wanted this to be the case because like we've been saying and we've said it before as well. We love this Clark so much, right? And it's nice to see Clark doing so much and, and to see Clark being competent and being respected. So I like that it's Clark who has this connection to Redding and Clark who is able to, uh, you know, leverage that to get information. But at the same time, I was like, why Why wouldn't Superman just do this? It's like, I'm sure Redding would, you know what? I, like, that's kind of the thing. It's, I, well, although I don't know, this we're, we are still talking early days of Superman here. So maybe it's not such a such a given that oh. Redding would just talk to Superman. Maybe it really was like he needed the personal connection of Clark. Again, we've talked about this with episodes out of order. It's like, you never know where you are. The Haunted Lighthouse, the second episode that aired, you know, the Coast Guard is thrilled to see Superman. You know, other episodes, he shows up, people like, who are you? Like we said, yet uh, our prior conversation, Superman again, like he's he's a very new phenomenon. Right. So, you know, that could go either way. But again, I'm glad it's Clark. But yes, if we're really talking about, you know, what would be most believable and what would raise the least questions, it, it would be super, you know, it would be Superman just doing this. See, I think just the opposite. I think it would raise less questions if Clark leveraged or utilized his relationship with Wet Redding. Because if Superman landed in an army headquarters in Germany, I'm sure it'd be like, hey, I gotta tell, guess who I just saw, right? So it might have created a level of communication they didn't they didn't want to occur. Or Clark thought, look, let me keep a low, low profile on this until I know what's going on. Okay. Because I was thinking just this minute that if Superman landed there and Schumann sees him, Superman might not have known how big the gang was or the thieves or how many contacts. It might have been more of a low profile for Clark to go in. Now, I'm surmising that now, right? But, I, you know, it's, it's funny, too, because— uh, it's, this is why I love having these conversations because it, it sparks memories of other episodes and, and you see certain commonalities. Because I remember I had a similar thought when we covered Mystery of the Broken Statues because in that episode, there's that instance. And I know you and I have talked about this scene before. <laughs> we love when Clark grabs those guys in the antique shop. But what was fascinating about that, and I talked about it in that episode, was how he changes to Superman to fly to the antique shop but then enters as Clark and it it was just sort of an interesting thing. Why why would super, like why would Superman not be the one to apprehend them? And because it's not even like, you know, he's taking an affirmative step and delaying this this action by changing changing clothes, changing his identity. But I don't know. Maybe this this does really kind of point to, you know, what what, what we've been saying and, and the way you have have expressed it, you know, so artfully. This idea of like Clark is really who he is. Superman is the extension. And he'll use Superman when absolutely necessary, but otherwise the default really is Clark, mm-hmm. you know. And I do like that. So again, as I'm as I'm wrestling with some of this, it's not necessarily that I definitely want it the other way. I, I think there is there is value, but it's just kind of you know trying to see how it all tracks is, 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 can be kind of fascinating sometimes. Yeah, yeah. But so he goes back to Henderson and. The police have actually accomplished a lot in, in this time. And I did like here how everything sort of dovetailed where uh, in that cable, right, we get the the information that Dr. Schumann, you know, kind of spilled the beans, right, and gave up the address of of the doctor, right, who was meant to get the radium, who's, who's holding Jim captive. So they have an address for the doctor. And the police, I guess, through the cab company were able to track down uh, the madame, Right, she was dropped off at the, the she was dropped off at the train station and is on one of three trains. Now, see, this is where I'm getting angry. Right? Okay, go for it. So, Clark is informed that the Madame there were there were only three trains that left like at noon the prior day. Uh, one was the Miami Express, and one was I forget I forget what they were the Pennsylvania Unlimited or Philadelphia Unlimited. There were three. Right, Clark leaves Henderson's office changes to Superman, 
lands. This is the antithesis of Night of Terror, right? Where there were three hotels. Yep. Right. He the first train he lands on, he finds Stephen Carr or Count uh, von Kleben or Matt the Madam in one of the uh, train compartments. And one one thing I'll say, I'm sorry, but it was the first train. It was the first train. So what I expected was some confusion. Like, how does he know which train this guy actually got on? Right. I mean, in fairness, look. I mean, like the, the the real answer is right. In Night of Terror, we had more minutes to fill, so he needed to, you know, it and needed here, to be they the had third. To wrap one. it up. You know, here we were winding down. In fairness, we don't know. It's possible that he went to other ones off screen. We're never told explicitly if that was the first one or not. It's just the first one that we see. And the other thing I I, I will say, if I may, now that I'm thinking about it in the moment. Who's to say he just didn't hang out in the train station, change into different clothes, and take a train two hours later to Montana or to, you know, why did it have to be the three that left at the same time the cab arrived, right? Uh, that is, yeah, that's fair. That's uh, fair. But, but still, he got right on the, the first train. Uh, the thing I will say, and you know I, I'm, I've come over the past month to admire Stephen Carr as an actor. But one thing, it never plays well when Stephen Carr and Superman are in the same scene because he gets his ass kicked, the judo flip, right? It reminded me of the thing when he was the pilot and he got jawed and knocked out. This guy, you know what? He's a better actor because not only does he convey uh, different personalities and different roles, different occupations, but he's at risk. He gets jawed, knocked out. He gets thrown on the floor on this one. I know. I know. It really is. It really is kind of crazy. But, oh, I also, I sus I have to, I would have to watch them back to back, but I think the footage of Superman landing on the train, and I think even walking through the train is reused footage from uh, Monkey Mystery when he's looking for the daughter of oh, the see, scientist I've, I've with, never the, with the formula. That one. I'll watch that. I'll make it a point to. It, it's, it looked exceedingly familiar. I'm assuming it's the same footage. Uh, if not, it's just, it's just very close to it. So, the the count is is the count is out and Superman has retrieved the radium and then he goes to the doctor's office apprehends those guys they try to they try to pull that rope and zap Jim but of course Superman is able to stop them Jim emerges and we have our final exchange yes yes uh, I'm uh, you could do that quote better than me I don't know it verbatim but it's just the Jim talks about how this whole thing started I was trying to get a, an interview with this actress. Superman's like, oh, I hear she's very pretty. Jim and says, gosh, Superman, you're more gorgeous to me than any actress, right? Now, I kind of cringed when I watched that now. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I, you know, the last time you were on, we talked about No Hold Barred. We talked about, talk about cringe that, you know, that very, that very corny platitude that Superman, that Clark makes at the end of that episode about magic and knowledge. And it just felt just like kind of an off note to go out on here. I thought, I thought this was a humorous, Humorous button to and the scene. And it's also, well, it, I'm going I'm to change my own thinking. Instead of being cringeworthy, I'm, I'm looking at it through the lens of 2023, when now we've learned that Jack Larson was gay. So, you know, it took me out of my suspension of disbelief. Oh, you think like the writers were giving, like were kind of playing I hope, into- I hope not. I hope not. I think it, now that I, I think it was truly intended, now that we're discussing it and I'm processing it, I think it was more that, look, Jimmy idolizes Superman, right? And it was a sense of his excitement. He just saved me. You're the best. I, I, I was, you know, these guys had me locked in there. You saved me, and I really appreciate it. So, yeah, it's like he's, ha admiration, I mean, he's admiration. happy to see Superman. He'd rather look, you know, he'd rather see Superman at that moment. That's his salvation. Rather, good point. No, rather good than point. even the, the prettiest star in the world. But, you know, it, it, it's, um, I'm glad you bring this up because it was, it's in this episode in particular, we have a very notable instance of a male actor in drag, right? And then that line from Jimmy at the end. Now, certainly, you know, from today's standards, like you wouldn't bat an eye at anything like that. Um, I was surprised. I know when we were talking about this off mic a little bit, it's like I know, you know, drag has a long history and going back to vaudeville days and, and whatnot, my knowledge is, is limited, but I have general understanding. So it's not like that was so out of the, you know, so out of the norm, but- I was still surprised to see that in 
in this 1950s show. And I, I've not watched enough of, of, of television from that era to know if this was a little bit of an outlier or if this was sort of commonplace. Because it wasn't just that the count, you know, just threw on like a big oversized wig and a, and a coat or something like that. It was a full on, you know, dress and makeup. I mean, it was, it was, it was really, uh, you know, the, the, the character and the actor committed to it. And yeah, it was just, it was interesting. Like I would not have expected that from a show of that time, but maybe that's not so out of, out of place. Yeah. I processing at this minute, I do know in the early 1950s, the Milton Berle show, he, he came out in drag a lot for humor, but that's the sum total of my knowledge. That's the absolute sum total. Now, as we're talking it through this moment, did that give the character Von Clavin better cover because, you know, they might have been looking for a man escaping Germany, right? And maybe if he went under this masquerade of being a female, the Madame, did that give him better cover where they wouldn't be looking for him? But then I would say, geez, if he's this good, at, uh, uh, you know, with camouflage and makeup and all that stuff, why didn't he just come out as an old man and get in the cab? An entirely different disguise, who knows, right? Well, you know, we're we're speculating like he's this he's this you know chameleon like master of, of right, disguise. Maybe this is he's like a one trick pony. Like this is okay. this is yeah. this is go to. <laughs> yeah, uh. I you know it's funny. I uh, more often than not, I feel like I, I come out of episodes that I come out of recordings with a more positive impression of the episode than I went in with normally. I feel like this time I went in, I was, I was higher on this episode, and after talking about it and some of the some of the plot holes, either real or or potential, uh, yeah, I feel like my my opinion of this overall maybe has lessened a little bit. Still had a lot of fun talking about it, but we have to do the the last major piece here. We have to give our rating. Okay, I, before we just yeah, the thing. Um, okay, the, I do have criticisms. You know, like hey, how did he know which train? Um, Henderson, like, hiding stuff, and even the, like, well, wait, <laughs> you flew to Germany without the stuff the guy was developing and, and all that stuff. Uh, those were disappointments. But I really did like the respect the Army intelligence team had for Clark. And I also liked the way they mutually analyzed things. So he collaborated well with – the things I really liked about this show were the collaboration with Henderson, where they – they shared information and they they moved the the investigation forward, and I like the collaboration with the Army Intelligence because uh, that that placed the the version of Clark that I like a guy who who is decisive and uh, warrants respect. So those were the aspects I liked. Um, having said that, the other thing I kind of liked about this was it really moved fast. I mean, you you. You know, you were not bored like, oh, what are they going to do now? It moved so fast, I think it kind of uh, overrode some of the plot holes. Yeah, fair enough. No, I think overall, I think overall this was solid. Like I said, I, I did like the international component. I do think overall, well, well, you know, maybe there are some some gaps, but I do overall like the, the general mystery that was set up here. And look, the title is Double Trouble. We have a double cross at the beginning. We have... Two twins. We have I the, mean, the, the, yeah, the twins. The twins. We and have then we got mistaken Char identity with Jim and, you know, them thinking. And, and also uh, Von Clavin, Madame, double. Yeah. You know, so they, 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 they hit that on like four different levels. Um, I guess the only other thing that uh, I did find appealing about this episode, and I said it at the beginning, I'll say it fast, it did increase his power set or it displayed like, hey, this guy can fly halfway around the world and get back you know, within within minutes or within half an hour or something like that. Um, and we really didn't see that in, in earlier ones, that his speed uh, or he could cover that, that, that expanse that quickly. All right. So on a scale of one to five fedoras, how many would you give this one? 3.5. 3.5. Okay. That, all right. Right on. Uh, man, where do I land on this one? Mm, not higher than a three. Is it lower than a three? 
don't know. I don't know if I would go so low as a 2.5. Uh, you know what? I'm going to say three. This was sort of, you know, kind of middle of the road episode for me. I, I didn't, uh, a couple of things kind of, kind of, uh, you know, bugged me a little bit, but I thought it was interesting and enjoyable overall. So I, I'm, I'm going to stick with a three on this one. Okay. I, I agree. I agree. I mean, I think a three is very fair. Uh, cause I think later as you review some of the, uh, seasons like, uh, Three through six, I think you'll see one more one point fives and twos. I know we'll uh, we'll see when we get to those color seasons. I uh, every time they come up, I always talk about how I'm a little little apprehensive about getting there. But I, I, we're gonna have a good time on the podcast either way. And since I, I'll be watching three quarters of those color episodes for the first time, I've only seen about about a quarter of them. So most will be new to me. And so even if they're not my favorite, it's new, you know, it's new Superman content. It's new George Reeves Superman. So that, I, that's a good thing. And I, uh, I'm excited. We're, but we still have we still have many, many black and white episodes still to get through. So, Rich, thank you again. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on here for this. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. I look forward to the next time. We will have you on again. Uh, not, not too far from now, I'm sure. Audience, thank you, as always, for joining us. I really appreciate you either listening or watching. Thank you very much. Uh, make sure you come back for the next installment in two weeks. Adventures await. This show is part of the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network, home to Digging for Kryptonite, another exciting episode in the Adventures of Superman, Summoning the Zords, and My Comic Shop History, available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review today. Sign up at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato for additional content. Thank you all.